Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi guys. It's great to have you back with us. Uh, We hope you're well, and if you're not, well, at least you have us to keep you company for the next 40 minutes or so. A huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, and a special thanks to Penny Wilson, Charlie Henderson, and Rebecca Donnelly, who have joined us in the last few days. Thanks, guys. Signing up to support us on Patreon takes just a couple of minutes, but the joy it brings to us, and hopefully you as well, lasts a lifetime. We have bonus episodes, blog posts, competitions, all sorts of shit going on over there. So what are you waiting for? Pause the episode right now and head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Christ, Mark, they're only about a minute in and you're telling them to pause us. This week's episode sees us return to the 7-7 bombings, which we first covered back in February of 2019. Now, as we approach the 15-year anniversary of what has been described as the deadliest bombing in London since World War II, we are going to take you on a journey into the life and crimes of one of the wives of one of the four suicide bombers who brought London to a standstill on that fateful summer's day back in 2005. This episode tells the story of Samantha Luthwaite, aka The White Widow. I am so excited that you're going to tell us about her because she's not someone I know much about. And I remember when I covered this case, you mentioned her and yeah, I've just been waiting for you to do this ever since. And it's, I'm really excited to hear more about her and to kind of learn a bit more about her. Yeah, because I've wanted to cover this from the very beginning of the show. And it's quite, uh, it's quite an unusual case for us because ordinarily our episodes centre around one specific crime or maybe a, a number of crimes and we then build the episode around it. With this, it's almost like a biography of an individual that then leads up to multiple crimes right at the end. So it is a bit different for us. And I I was initially thinking maybe I could put it out on Patreon as a bonus episode this month uh, because we have, you know, a real loyal army of supporters there that kind of would take to it being a bit different. But then I thought, actually, no, I'm going to kind of flip it on its head put it out to the mainstream and um, I'll do something uh, more normal for Patreon uh, later this month. So Yeah, I mean, because the Charles Bronson episode was quite similar. Really, what did he do? But a lot of it was just about him and his life. So yeah, I think it. I think it's still going to be a really good ep- episode. I'm intrigued. Yeah, it's um, really, it's a study into an individual who you know, came from such humble beginnings. Uh, She lived in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. She was brought up in a kind of normal household, pretty much, and um, excelled at school. And by her mid-twenties, she had become pretty much an African warlord uh, responsible for, you know, over 400 deaths. So, um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's going to be a fascinating ride to delve into the life of Samantha Luthwaite. Samantha Louise Luthwaite was born on the 5th of December in 1983 to parents Andrew and Elizabeth in Bambridge, an historic town which lies on the River Ban in County Down in Northern Ireland. Samantha's father, a former British soldier who served in the 9th 12th Royal Lancers, had met her mother in 1975 when he was deployed to Armagh for a four-month tour during the Troubles. When his regiment left, he stayed, later marrying Elizabeth before welcoming Samantha into the world in 1983. The family didn't settle in Northern Ireland, though. 
Shortly after Samantha's birth, they moved to Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, where Dad Andrew got a job as a builder, and the family went on to lead a normal, unremarkable suburban life, which reminded me of me. Yeah, although not with the turning into a warlord. Well, obviously not that bit. (laughs) Aylesbury is a market town approximately 50 miles north of London, and it's seen its population grow dramatically over the decades, mostly as a result of a number of new housing developments, including many London overspill housing estates, built to ease pressure on the capital and to move people from crowded inner-city slums to more country nice locations. And I'm kind of making this sound as though we're talking about Victorian London, when the city was an overcrowded cesspit of filth and disease. But this was all actually, uh, all actually took place in the last 30 or 40 years. So I suppose what I'm saying is Aylesbury essentially is a relatively new town, lots of fairly modern housing estates, retail parks, and it probably kind of lost its identity over the decades. But The great thing is for a market town, it's quite unusual in that it has a fairly rich and diverse culture with multiple faiths and ethnicities, which you don't normally get in a market town in the home counties. No, and I guess because it's kind of with London and London's so diverse. um, And it's really interesting. I didn't realise it was only made, you know, created so recently. Yeah, the, the the town had always been there in its origin, but it was it was a very small traditional market town. But when they started moving people out of London into it, obviously it grew and it took on its own new identity, I guess. So anyway, as I said, the family moved to Aylesbury in the mid-1980s and made a life for themselves there. They lived in a terraced house and Samantha attended Elmhurst Middle School and later the Grange Secondary School. And she was a popular girl. Her pale skin and auburn hair attested to her Irish heritage. And she was quite striking, really. She was also intelligent and thoughtful. Former school friends described her as generous, caring and even reserved. Samantha championed human rights causes. And she was heavily involved with an Amnesty International movement in her teens. Her best friend was a Muslim girl who lived across the street from her. And when Samantha's parents experienced marital difficulties in the early 90s, culminating in their divorce in 1994, Samantha increasingly sought solace in this girl's friendship. Samantha became like an extended member of this girl's family, and she spent considerable time with them as she entered her teens. She was particularly taken with their emphasis on family, the love and support they had for each other, their closeness and stability, qualities that were intrinsic to their Muslim faith. And these were qualities that were not evident in Samantha's own family. Consequently, she became more and more drawn to Islam and to her friend and the community in which she lived. Now, I have to say at this point, I know very little about religion any religion, but what I have read about Islam I've really liked, and I think as we go on with Samantha's story, it would be really easy to blame religion for her subsequent actions, but it is not Islam that's a problem here, it's Samantha. And in the same way we have extreme so-called Christians who do terrible things in the name of God, this is no different, and I just wanted to make that point really clear. Um, and I also wanted to say I'm no expert in the Islam Islamic faith, and whilst I've tried to educate myself uh, around it, if I get stuff wrong, uh, just gently point me in the right direction. 
I think that's such a good point because um, whilst that's something that's major in her life, the crimes she commits are just horrendous and it's almost like the colour of her hair. It makes no difference to the crimes. It's just a fact. Um, and I can understand why she was drawn to it because, yeah, the family side of things and the the way that people of the Islamic faith really have that real sense of community and, and you know, like worshipping together and everything. And it's, it is really wonderful. So she would be drawn to that, especially if she's feeling that her home life is so kind of fractured at that point. Yeah, it's completely understandable. And I'm sure, you know, for some of those teen years, she found, you know, what she was looking for in that religion. But for her, it became not necessarily about religion in, in her later years. As Samantha entered the final year of her A-levels, 9-11 happened in America. And this event had a pronounced effect on Samantha and her view of the West. Following the attacks, George W. Bush declared a war on terror and invaded Afghanistan. But Samantha didn't believe that starting a war was the answer. And it was around this time that she became involved with Stop the War, more commonly known as the Stop the War Coalition, a British group established in the wake of 9-11 to campaign against what it believed were unjust wars. And she attended demonstrations around the country, calling on the West to withdraw their troops from Afghanistan. She and the Stop the War Coalition weren't justifying the terrorist attacks, they were simply calling for a peaceful resolution. But it has to be said, and this might not be the case now, at that time there were factions of this organisation who believed in waging their own war on terror, a war against the West. And I think that's going to be the case in in most groups, if there's a political group, even if the majority are um, kind of focused on like a peaceful resolution or peaceful protest, there's always going to be small factions which perhaps want to further their own agenda and their own sort of violent causes. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you get it in any group, you get it in any political party. Um, So this was no different, absolutely not. And although we don't know if Samantha had adopted these ideologies at this point, she was definitely moving towards a more extremist view as she became more and more involved with the Stop the War Coalition and some of the facets or factions that supported it. Samantha went on to finish her A-levels, gaining an A in religious studies, and she secured a place at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, to study for a politics and religion degree, which was due to start in September 2002. But the September 11th attacks had changed her. In the 12 months that followed, leading up to her starting her degree, she had become more and more disillusioned with the West. And as Muslims were routinely attacked in the press and in the street, all lumped together as extremists, she had already set her sights on becoming a jihadi. Now, if you're not sure what that term means, I'll explain, because I I was familiar with it, but I didn't really know. Um, So jihad is an Arabic word, and it's kind of taken on its own meaning in the last 20 years or so. It can be literally translated as striving or struggling, and in Islam it can be used to describe the struggle of devoting oneself to the religion and the discipline that requires, because it does require a lot of discipline. But it's more colloquial translation, which has been adopted by the West, but also used, it's used within the Islam faith, refers to an individual who is engaged in armed or militant opposition to Western influence. 
So essentially, um, a jihadi in its colloquial sense is a radical so-called Muslim who uses violence or force to defend their beliefs. So back to Samantha. As I said, by the time she'd finished her A-level, she was ready to wage her own war on terror, a war against the West. She'd continued to attend the Stop the War demonstrations and had become acquainted with a man called Abdullah El Faisal, a Salafi Muslim cleric who toured the UK preaching racial hatred and who urged his followers to murder Jews, Hindus, Christians and Americans, a really horrible guy. After starting at the University of London, Samantha explained to El Faisal that she was looking for a husband, a fellow jihadi with whom she could wreak havoc on the Western world. El Faisal gave her the email address of a boy named Jermaine Lindsay. And I say boy deliberately because this guy was two years younger than Samantha. He was just 16 years old at the time. The pair arranged to meet at a Stop the War rally and they immediately hit it off. Within weeks, Samantha had dropped out of university and she had married Jermaine in the front room of an Iman's house. In an interview Samantha would later give to the Sun newspaper, for which she was reportedly paid £30,000, she claimed Jermaine was a man of peace. She said, We found we were very much alike, kindred spirits. And she claimed Jermaine had wanted to qualify as a human rights lawyer, and together that they had wanted to make a difference in the world through peaceful means. But this was a crock of shit. Samantha had known exactly what Jermaine was like when she'd married him. He was a sick, twisted individual. A carbon copy of her. This is just, I feel really bad for her parents. This is so not what they would have wanted when they were bringing her up and she had all this this sort of upbringing. And then for suddenly, all of these different factors to kind of come into play. And then suddenly she's marrying this, like you said, this boy in the front room of a mimam's house just oh it's just ridiculous it is and i know i'm I'm not sure if her mum attended her wedding but her dad refused to attend because he really couldn't accept that his daughter had converted to islam um which is a shame because at that point you know she was keeping her ideologies to herself so as far as they were concerned you know she was just someone who had changed religion and they couldn't accept it which is sad yeah, I think that's really, really awful because there's, you know, you should be able to embrace that and then um, use it as something to learn and, and explore something new. And he obviously we know how this ends, so fair enough. But at the time, it would have just been an opportunity to expand their horizons as a family. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. So we will return now to uh, the story of Samantha, or Sharafia, as she was known in the Islam faith, um, which I thought, actually, Beth, and that would probably be a really good Muslim name for you. I really like the name. It's, it's a really nice name, isn't it? Yeah. And so at which point did she change her name? When she converted? Yeah, so when she was 17, yeah. I think. I think she formally converted at 17. There were some reports I'd seen where she'd converted at 15, but I think it was 17. Um, just before she went to university. Um, and yeah, I, she, she was called Sherafia from this point onwards, but I, I will still refer to her as Samantha, um, just for clarity, really. Yeah. So over the next three years, Samantha and Jermaine's marriage prospered. In April of 2004, Samantha gave birth to their first child. 
By the following summer, she was heavily pregnant with their second. But instead of being preoccupied with antenatal appointments and birthing plans, Samantha had been busy planning her husband's impending martyrdom. Which takes us to that fateful summer's day in London. And I'm not going to go into masses of detail now because we've already done that. But I will take you back to that day, the day of the 7-7 bombings. And I have to say, what follows is harrowing. And we don't often give warnings on this show, but be warned. As dawn broke over London on the morning of Thursday the 7th of July in 2005, No one could have foreseen the total devastation that would rip through the capital in just a few hours' time. No one except a small group of jihadis who were about to commit the deadliest single act of terrorism on UK soil since the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which crashed over Lockerbie, killing all 243 passengers on board, as well as 16 crew and 11 people on the ground. As the sun rose over the capital, Jermaine Lindsay was 55 miles north in Luton, waiting to board a train bound for London with three other men, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, Hasib Hussein and Shazad Tamwia. Together, the four of them would inflict a terrifying and life-changing terrorist atrocity that would chill this country to its very core, leaving 52 dead and hundreds injured. Three bombs were detonated on London's underground network in the space of 50 seconds that morning. The first, which was detonated by Mohammed Sadiq Khan, exploded on a train between Liverpool Street and Old Gate, killing seven people and injuring dozens more. The second bomb, which was detonated by Shazad Tanwia, exploded on a train travelling westbound from Edgware Road towards Paddington. Tanwia detonated his bomb as he stood at the rear of the second carriage. He killed six people that day. The third bomb was detonated by Samantha's husband, Jermaine, on a train travelling southbound towards Russell Square. That bomb killed 27 people. Giving evidence at the subsequent inquest, train driver Thomas Nairn recalled entering one of the carriages shortly after that explosion and he described seeing a sea of blackened faces. He recalled seeing people with frizzy hair literally standing on end, passengers semi-naked with their clothes blown off from the force of the blast. Survivor stories would later emerge of passengers with their legs blown off, of people screaming in pain, and of people sat in a stunned silence with the sound of the bomb ringing in their ears as they attempted to take in what had just happened. In the wake of 7-7, it was reported that one man was found some way down the track, hopping towards safety, carrying his own leg. Just horrific stories of the impact of this brutal crime. Yeah, I, I don't know why it, what it is, um, but this is something that really had stuck with me. And I think it's because when I was doing the research, I really wanted to kind of report some of the stories of the people who were really there. And um, yeah, I'll just never forget the first time I saw the image of the bus where the bomb had gone off and it had ripped through the bus. And the stories that people told afterwards, yeah, it's just really stuck with me. It was absolutely horrific. 
And I took all of that from the episode that you wrote, which focused solely on the 7-7 bombings, which obviously I listened to that again, part of my research for this case. And I have to say, um, that has been one of the episodes that has really struck a chord, you know, not just with you, but with so many of our listeners. It's the one that people remember, and they talk to me about it to this day, and they all say how well you covered it. So I just wanted to say massive well done, really, because it's a huge case, and you really did it justice. Oh, thank you. It was definitely one that um, was difficult to research and write, I'll be honest, but um, I'm really glad that I could still share their story and tell the the story of those people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely one that sticks with you, isn't it? Yeah, and I, th- I think it, it, you've hit the nail on the head. I think it was because you told it from the victim's point of view through so many victims' eyes that were there that day. Um, so yeah, it was really harrowing to, to hear it in their words. So after Jermaine Lindsay had detonated that final bomb on the underground that morning, there was sadly more to come, as we just alluded to, when Hasib Hussein detonated the fourth and final bomb on the number 30 bus in Tavistock Square, killing 13 people. And that happened about 50 minutes after the other bombs were detonated, if memory serves me correctly. Of course, as I said, we go into a lot more detail about 7-7 in our episode that's dedicated to that. And it's episode two of season two, if you're interested in hearing more about what happened on that fateful morning in London. So all four bombers died that morning. In their eyes and in the eyes of their followers, in the eyes of Samantha, they were all martyrs who would now be rewarded in the promised land. In the real world, of course, they were just dicks who were now dead, possibly on their way to hell, if you believe in that sort of thing. I love that you just said that. Hopefully that's not offended anyone. Someone like Samantha, I don't care about offending her. Yeah, fuck her, bitch. So after the bombings, a phone line was set up for the public to phone in if they believed someone they knew had been injured or killed in the blasts, which is pretty standard. They generally do it in those, uh, you know, huge events that, that sadly happen. Thousands of calls were received and one of those calls came from Samantha Luthwaite. She made a call to that hotline six days after the bombings, saying her husband Jermaine had gone missing and that she was worried that he may have been caught up in it on the day. Uh, She said that she felt that he was in London that day. Why would she do this? This is so weird. Well, I think she needed to report him missing and... You know, she wasn't saying that he was responsible. She was just saying that he was possibly a victim of this. Um, So I don't know why she did it that way, why she didn't just go to the police and report him missing. Maybe it was part of a grand plan so that they could claim responsibility. Maybe, actually, that's so true. Because I was just thinking, if you say that he was even any... You could just say he went missing in Scotland and then the police aren't going to think he was anywhere near London. But, Mm. yeah, potentially it's so that they can take credit. Yeah, it must be because, you know, obviously I don't work for the police or the security services, so I don't know exactly what happened. But they did raid Samantha's home, the house that she shared with Jermaine, later that day. So they must have had information on him because... You know, when Samantha phoned, they must have realised that actually this could be one of the bombers rather than a victim. But until that point, until Samantha had come forward, they obviously hadn't suspected him as otherwise they'd have raided the house sooner. Um, But I, I feel like he must have been on their radar as you don't just raid the home of every person who's reported as missing to that phone line, do you? 
So, as I said, Samantha's house was raided and um, she was questioned, but nothing was found in the home that she shared with Jermaine, and the decision was taken not to charge her with anything. She played the part of a devoted wife, sobbing quietly that she had never really known her husband, and demanding to know how he had been capable of committing such an appalling act. And the police bought it. As far as they were concerned, she was an innocent bystander who had no knowledge of her husband's plans. And, you know, they they did nothing wrong. Why would they have suspected any different? She was a victim in all of this, really. But not everybody believed Samantha's story. Two weeks after the bombings, her home was firebombed and the now heavily pregnant Samantha was moved to a police safe house and given police protection. And it was shortly after this that Samantha brokered that deal with the Sun newspaper to sell a story. Posing with her new baby in full Muslim dress, Samantha was pictured on the front page looking forlorn yet hopeful under the headline, Married to a 7-7 Suicide Bomber. In the accompanying interview, Samantha lamented her loss, but clearly keen to win over the British public, she said, when you look at the 52 dead and hundreds injured, I don't dwell on my loss too long. Oh my god, if she was genuine, that's a really kind thing to say, but knowing that she's not genuine in the slightest, that is horrific. What what an absolutely horrible person. And also, I, I don't think she would dwell on that loss anyway, because she would see his death um, for the greater good, for, for the cause. Yeah, he was a martyr in her eyes, yeah. So she wasn't grieving him, she was celebrating what he'd done. And yeah, maybe with that quote, maybe that was her having a bit of an in-joke that, you know, I don't dwell on my loss for too long because she wouldn't have dwelled dwelled on it. And she said of her husband, his behaviour gradually began to change. He turned from the man that I had married. In hindsight, I can now see exactly what was happening to him and why. How these people could have turned him and poisoned his mind is dreadful. He was an innocent, naive and simple man. I suppose he must have been an ideal candidate. And she went on to say, Jermaine is accountable for his actions 100% and I condemn with all my heart what he has done. I will try to remember for my children's sake the Jermaine I loved and I will raise them knowing their father was a man who truly loved them but the day will come when I have to tell them what he did. I just hope people understand I had nothing to do with this. We." Are victims too. I just, I just hate her. Ugh. Absolutely, yeah. And she, she's really clever. She's really intelligent, and that that's quite dangerous when that's accompanied with this kind of fanatical um, belief in in her cause. And this PR stunt worked. Samantha gained the public sympathy, and as far as we were all concerned, she'd gone off to live a quiet life with her thirty grand from the Sun, an innocent victim in all of this. Um, And of course, the story doesn't end there. While Samantha may have been living a quiet life in the aftermath of her husband's death, she was not living an innocent life. In 2006, aged 22 and now a single mother to two young children, Samantha moved into a council flat in Aylesbury. A neighbour who was a fellow convert to Islam remembered how her mother would visit her on an almost daily basis and she said that she believed her mother had become a recent convert to Islam too. And it was around this time that Samantha had started visiting Abdullah El Faisal, the Salafi Muslim cleric who had introduced her to Jermaine back in 2002. 
El Faisal was serving a nine-year prison sentence at the time for inciting racial hatred. Samantha would visit him at Long Larton Prison in Worcestershire and the pair would discuss their ideologies, how the war was not over and how Jermaine's actions were just the beginning. And we don't know for sure, but it would appear that El Faisal buoyed up Samantha's radical beliefs at this time and likely encouraged her next move. For in 2008, Samantha was faced with a choice. She either stayed in Aylesbury in her council flat living a life of what-ifs, or she capitalised on her reputation as the wife of a martyr. For Samantha, encouraged no doubt by El Faisal, it was an easy decision to make. After El Faisal had been released from prison, Samantha had continued to keep in touch with him. He had been deported to Jamaica upon his release in 2007, but Samantha had informed him that she was on the lookout for a new husband, another Jermaine, someone with whom she could continue to wage her war on the West. And it didn't take long for El Faisal to find her a potential suitor. During a world tour of generally preaching bollocks, El Faisal met a man named Farmy Salim. Farmy was looking for a white British girl to marry and El Faisal suggested Samantha. He called her then and there before introducing her to Farmy and the pair exchanged numbers. Following this, they spoke regularly on the phone and began a long-distance relationship. In Farmy, Samantha had met her perfect match. With her ideas and his links to terror in East Africa, there was nothing they couldn't achieve together. Within weeks, Samantha had boarded a plane with her two children, then aged four and two, bound for Johannesburg to start a new life with Farmy. The day after she landed, the two were married. Now, Farmy was already making a name for himself in South Africa at this point, and he had really close links to Al-Qaeda. When Samantha arrived, she was welcomed into his world with open arms. She'd become this sort of figurehead to these people and following the 7-7 bombings, her notoriety preceded her. Back home in Aylesbury, only neighbours noticed Samantha's absence. By this time, she'd completely cut ties with her family. She'd simply walked out of her old life and into her new one. And at first, Samantha's new life in Johannesburg looked to be one of middle-class respectability, at least on the surface. She drove a big white Mercedes, lived in a large detached home in a gated community in the suburbs and worked as an IT specialist for a halal pie factory. Farmy ran a successful business exporting medical supplies, at least that's what it said on the tin. To the outside world, her neighbours, her domestic staff, Samantha was just a normal working mom. But to those who were in the know, she was just biding her time, building links with an Al-Qaeda branch known as Al-Shabaab, a terrorist organisation which would promote her to the very top of its ranks. It's so crazy, it's just making me think like you never know people, you never know your neighbours and like what people are up to behind closed doors. Yeah. So this suburban housewife's transformation into full-blown warlord was now nearly complete. Samantha went by the name Natalie Fay Webb in Johannesburg, and by 2010 she'd had two more children. One was born at Stoke Mandenville Hospital in Buckinghamshire on a brief trip home, and the other was born at a private birthing centre in Johannesburg, 
And I only really wanted to kind of mention that because of Stoke Mandenville, which was Jimmy Savile's old stomping ground, wasn't it? I wondered why I recognised the name. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to have to cover that at some point, aren't we? It's going to be like a 10-parter. Yeah, basically, yeah. So in late autumn of 2011, Samantha and Farmy moved to Mombasa, Farmy's hometown. And it was here that they intended to base their terror operation. Unfortunately for them, however, shortly after their arrival, police raided a nearby house where they found a bomb factory which linked them to Samantha and Farmy. They managed to escape, but their identities were now blown, and they would have to evade capture if they were to continue with their deadly mission. On the 4th of January in 2012, Kenyan authorities issued an arrest warrant for Samantha to answer charges of possessing bomb-making material and conspiring to make an explosive device with the intent to harm others. A large team of detectives from SO15, the Metropolitan Police Services Counter-Terrorism Command, travelled to Nairobi to assist with the investigation, but they couldn't find her. Samantha was now believed to be in Somalia, being shielded by al-Shabaab. In July 2012, she was named as one of the suspects involved in a grenade attack on the Jericho Bar in Mombasa. The attack took place during a Euro 2012 football match between England and Italy. Kenyan police said a woman matching Samantha's description was seen near the bar shortly before the attack, in which three people were killed and 25 were injured. Police said at the time, We suspect Samantha Luthwaite was actively involved in the terrorist attack on the club. She was also subsequently linked with the September 2013 attack claimed by al-Shabaab on the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi, which left 71 dead and 200 injured. A woman matching her description was seen wielding an AK-47 as she entered the mall in full Muslim dress. So she was actually fully involved as well, not just... This, yeah, this has been disputed subsequently, but um, it's been heavily disputed. But at the time, there was certainly a lot of talk that she was not just mastermind masterminding this, but she was actually there. And I can almost see her, you know, in that full Muslim dress, you know, brandishing an AK-47. It's a really weird um, sight to behold in my in my head. Terrified shoppers were asked if they were Muslim. If they answered yes, they were ordered to recite the Quran. If they failed, they were killed. It was a really brutal attack. All in all, Samantha is said to have been responsible for over 400 deaths in various terrorist attacks across East Africa. She was named as a member of a terror cell that had planned to bomb the parliament in Nairobi, the United Nations headquarters in the city, and also an Ethiopian restaurant popular with Somali politicians. Detectives believed Samantha to be al-Shabaab's logistician, the person responsible for planning the attacks. She was also believed to be involved in financing the organisation and remains one of the world's most wanted women to this day. And her whereabouts are unknown still. Despite multiple rumours of her death, she is believed to still be alive, possibly still living in Somalia, protected by what remains of al-Shabaab. So that's the um, that's the end of the episode. It's uh, a bit of a weird one because we don't really focus on on the crimes that she committed until right at the end. But 
Um, but yeah, I think it's fascinating because she was just this ordinary person who ended up rising to the ranks in, you know, these terror cells in East Africa and was massively respected within those organizations. And I think it'd be really interesting to just know where she is right now. What is she doing? Is she living the life of a warlord in a palace somewhere in, in East Africa? Um, answers on a postcard, please. It's really terrifying to imagine as well. She's just probably still going about her normal life with something in the background. And it's really quite scary. Yeah, it is. And her children as well. Like, what kind of a life are they having right now? Are they having a really lavish life because they've got, you know, the proceeds of all of her crimes? Or or are they kind of all in hiding? Or what's going on? It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, really, really um, fascinating case. So as as we always say, please do get in touch with us in all the usual ways. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Um, let us know what you thought of the case. Um, let us know if you have any information. If you've been to East Africa recently and you might have seen her, please do get in touch. No, go to the police if you have. <laughs> let us know first. We'll do follow up then. Um, thank you for listening guys uh, we'll be back next week uh, don't forget to check out tales.com and if you didn't pause the show at the beginning to head over to patreon uh, then you can do that now so what are you waiting for take care guys we'll see you next time bye bye <laughs>